Okay, we are in Psalm 53 tonight. Psalm 53. Now, Psalm 53 is much like what Psalm? 14. 14. Matter of fact, I was asked, are you going to cover 53? Uh, since you could finish earlier if you did <laughs> so for that one week we'll be drawn out um, uh, but let's look at 53 most of the as, as one writer said and this is a memorable way to say it Psalm 53 and Psalms 14 are twins but they're not identical twins there are some differences. We will, as we begin, why don't we read them both? And I think I'm going to read them from the ESV because I've, I've marked particularly some points of difference. We're not going to point out all those points of difference at the beginning. Uh, we'll save the most important as far as putting each of them in their context. But let's see the similarity here. First, Psalm 53. Psalm 53, the heading to the choir master according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon God? There they are. In great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now that's 53. Let's read Psalm 14, quickly, Psalm 14, and again I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that, is, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, a couple of things I wanted to point out 
at the beginning. What, what would you say are a couple of differences? I'll give you a chance um, here, though we're not going to explore all of these thoroughly right now. David? Uh, in Psalm 53, there's some places that use God, and in Psalm 14, it's the Lord. Okay. At least in the New American Standard Version, I assume the Hebrew is different. Yeah, the Hebrew is different here. Um, and what happens is in Psalm 14, you find the reference to Lord in all capitals showing. Uh, a Hebrew term Yahweh that is used four times and Elohim which is translated God is used three times in contrast to this Psalm 53 Psalm 53 uses Elohim the word for God seven times. No uses of Yahweh. Now, we stated, and it's difficult to know the exact reason for this, but in Psalms 42 to 83, usually God is referred to as Elohim, which is simply translated God in your versions. There are some references to the Lord in Psalms 42 through 83. We've seen several of them as we've gone throughout this section. But it is the exception rather than the rule. For the rule is the term Elohim is used. So that is a striking difference between these two that is good to mention. The first... um, you probably noticed the difference between 14, 5, and 6 and 53, verse 5. We're going to just we're just going to leave that alone right now. We will, Lord willing, deal with it. But what else did you notice? Let me, let me say it's pretty early in the psalm. Well, the heading. The heading. The headings are different. Now that is interesting as well. These psalms that are so similar have a different heading and first Samuel um, but but uh, it says for the choir director according to Mahaloth a maskel of David now one of the things about the placement of Psalm 53 this sounds this sounds dumb to kind of build it up like this it's between Psalm 52 and Psalm 54. But but Psalm 52 is tied to a specific historical circumstance like Psalm 54 is. Psalm 52 in the title is tied to Doeg the Edomite. And we read about Doeg in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. We talked about that last week. 1 Samuel 21 and 22, we read some of the story of Doeg. Psalm 54 in the heading is tied to the men of Ziph who said to Saul, is not David hiding among us? And you read that happening twice in 1 Samuel 23 
and verse 19 and in 1 Samuel 26. You see that. Between these, you have this which describes the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. But the word for fool is the Hebrew word Nabal, which is a person's name as well in 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25, around verse 25. Do you remember when Abigail says, as his name is, so is he? And I'm not quoting directly. But but basically, he lives up to his name. He is a fool. The word that's used here for fool is Nabal's name. And so what I'm saying is this is tied very closely with a period of time in David's life where we see similar kind of things happening in 1 Samuel. And was Nabal particularly under discussion? Uh, I do not know or in consideration when this was written. I I don't know. Um, But one of the things also you can think about, and we'll wait a moment till we deal with this. We'll, We'll deal with this at the end. Think about other passages in the Bible that are repeated in the Bible. Um, and that's not, I'm not even mentioning here events that are found in several Gospels, the synoptics. But think about things that elsewhere you find repeated. Obviously, it must be that God has some purpose in it. But, but let's deal with what's in Psalm 53. Psalm 53, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. As we've already discussed, this is for the Hebrew word, it's for the word that is also Nabal's name. But particularly here, what the fool is affirming is the fool is affirming there is no God. This is probably not a person who is denying the existence of God altogether, but a person who is living with no, without taking that reality into consideration. I saw a poll yesterday. I do not know if this be true. I hope it's not. But I think the poll stated that 43% of millennials said they either do not believe that God exists or they don't care. If you don't care, you don't believe. Because understanding that God is brings with it a corresponding responsibility to find out what's pleasing to Him. And I don't think this is talking about the kind of person who just says, God's not there, not defending that person. For that person is denying the ultimate reality. But I am saying, this is just talking about people who say they acknowledge it, but don't live that way. 
But all of them fall in this category. John, you, you had your hand up a moment ago. Somebody, somebody said about that statement, not so much atheism as it is arrogance. A lot of, uh, yes, it does seem to be uh, arrogance. And I, I've got some, uh, we, well, we've seen some things in the book of Psalms that are similar to this. Look at Psalm 10. Psalm 10 has some statements like this. Psalm 10, verse 4. Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. Then in verse 11, verse 11 of the same psalm, he says to himself, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see. Here are people not taking God's existence into consideration in their living, in their dwelling. Here is Jeremiah 5 and verse 12. Jeremiah 5 verse 12. They have lied about the Lord and said, Not he. Misfortune will not come upon us and we will not see sword or famine. These are people who thought we will never experience judgment. God is not going to bring judgment against us. They wouldn't have dis agreed with the fact there was a God, but they would have stated God is not going to intervene and bring judgment in our case. There's also a passage in Zephaniah 1 verse 12. Zephaniah 1 verse 12, God says it will come about at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Lord will not do good or evil. And it is the foolish person who has said this in his heart, who goes on and lives his life as if there is no God to whom he must give an account. If you live that way, you are a foolish, foolish person. Do not live that way. Now, I want you to notice too in the text that this particular word fool, I'm going to give you some passages where this particular term for fool is used. This navel. There are different words for fool in the Old Testament. But all of these should use that word for fool. And we'll say just a word or two about some of them later. But some passages that use this term. Genesis 34 verse 7. Genesis 34 verse 7. Deuteronomy 22 verse 21 a passage that we may be covering some at this time tomorrow night Judges 19 verse 23 Judges 20 and verse 6 and also 2 Samuel 13 verses 11 and 12 now let me explain what's going on in those passages of Scripture. In Genesis 34 and verse 7, Shechem has raped Dinah. 
when Shechem raped Dinah in Genesis 34, uh, the brothers are outraged that this disgraceful thing has been done in Israel. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 21, a man marries a woman to find out that she has already been sexually immoral. And the Bible talks about how she's done a disgraceful thing in her father's house. Judges 19, uh, verse 23, and Judges 20, verse 6, and also Judges 20, verse 10, they deal with... This is where the men go to Bethlehem, the Levite, his concubine, and the men of the city gather around and said, bring the man out that we may know him, that we may have sexual relations with him. And the man pushes his concubine to the crowd and they rape her all night long and kill her. This is described by this particular word, and in 2 Samuel 13, verses 11 and 12, that is the context of, of Amnon raping Tamar. These involve, in these cases, all sexual behavior. Now, it's used in some cases for behavior that's not sexual. I'm not saying that's the only way it's used. But I am saying that it's used often this way for for behavior that threatens individuals, that threatens a community. And immoral sexual behavior does threaten a community. It threatens a community. It is also the word that's used in Job 2 verses 9 and 10. When Job tells his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women. Should we not accept good from the hand of the Lord and also accept adversity? It is foolishness to only serve God when it benefits us. And in 1 Samuel 25, in Nabal's case, it's not sexually immoral behavior that is described, but it's just a callous disregard for people who have helped him and people who have made sure that his flocks are well. But all of that kind of behavior is described as foolish. As foolish. And may God help us not to walk in any of these ways. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And generally when somebody is saying something in their heart, in the book of Psalms, it is saying something negative or a denying accountability to God. It says they are corrupt. They have committed abominable injustice. And there's a slight vocabulary change there from Psalm 14.1. And it says there is no one who does good. They are saying there is no God in verse 1. And God saying there is no one, same word in both cases, there's no one good. 
There's no one good. And we'll see this word used again in verse 3 when it says there's no one who does good, not even one. So as man is passing judgment on God and declaring himself independent of God, in verse 2, God is looking down to see if there are any who understand to see if there are any who seek Him. Again, sometimes an expression that's used well can really help capture our attention. As God looked upon man, instead of seeing men seeking Him, one writer said, people are running away from Him. God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands. If there's anyone who seeks after God. Every one of them, the Bible says, has turned away. Together they have become corrupt. There is not one, no one who does good Not even one. Maybe we can stay there is hyperbole in some of this psalm. Because in verse 4, God is still going to speak of my people. And sometimes based on a verse like this or based upon Jesus' statement to the rich young ruler, when the rich young ruler asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. I've had people ask, should we ever call anyone a good person? Well, there are people in the Bible that are called good people. That's a pretty good answer to that. In Acts 11 verse 24, Barnabas is described as a good person. And you remember when Jesus talks about you will know a tree by its fruits, he talks about a good man out of a good treasure of the heart bringing forth what is good in Matthew 7 in verse 18, in Matthew 12 in verse 35. A good man bringing out a good treasure from his heart. And remember too in the parable of the sower that some of the seed fell in good soil and they are described as good good and honest hearts. But while I state that, I don't want to minimize the picture that this is drawing either because this is not saying these things casually or carelessly. But God is looking out among men. He says there is no one who does good, not even one. All have turned aside. They have become corrupt. In verse 1, you see they are corrupt. And then uh, you see this phrase again in verse uh, verse, uh, 3 that the phrase is used. Uh, But the word corrupt that's used in verse 1 
is used a word that is used to describe the evil of the world in Noah's day in Genesis 6. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. In Genesis 6 verse 11, Genesis 6 verse 12, it's used to describe the corruption of the world in Noah's day. It is also used to describe the judgment that came upon the world in Noah's day. Because the world had corrupted itself in Genesis 6, then God is going to destroy it. Same word in Hebrew in Genesis 6 and 7. So, doesn't present a beautiful picture of humanity. Doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy about other people. I understand why we do this. And often I comfort myself with this thought too. I'm not trying to be too critical of this. But at times we hear a moving story, a touching story of someone showing concern and we like to assure ourselves there are a lot of good people out there. And there's good in everybody. And and you know, I'm not so sure. I, I can remember talking with this to a person at a gospel meeting once and it was a very uh, gracious older couple and they felt that there's some point in everybody's life from the worst sinner to the to the best uh, but there's some point in everybody's life where they're open to the gospel and I'm not so sure that's not true I'm not so sure that's not true but while we comfort them ourselves with that I will tell you something else there's bad in everybody, too. And there are a lot of bad people out there. A lot of bad people um, that have no qualms about even taking someone else's life. Now, I know that's not a comforting thought. We just pray God shield us from those people. And may our paths not cross with theirs. But at the same time, isn't that what some of this passage is saying? What thoughts do you all have on those first three verses? John? You used the word humanity uh, about verse 2. Is that what's intended when he refers to uh, looks down from heaven upon the sons of men? Is that There's no subset of humanity intended there. It's just generic. Yes, I think that's just a way to speak of people. Like uh, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him in that context, just used in parallelism with man himself. Yes. Any other thoughts? Verse 4 have the workers of iniquity or the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God. Now, one of the things that we already stated 
that while he has talked about humanity in very dark terms in verses 1 through 3, he does emphasize that there are my people in the midst of the world. That, that emphasis is even stronger in Psalm 14. But you see it here in verse 4, have workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread. And to eat up my people as though they eat bread means they they devour them, they destroy them, they do harm to them. And to them, uh, it is a normal daily occurrence. Eating bread, bread was a staple of their diet. For example, in, in Proverbs 30 verse 20, this is the way of the adulterous woman. She eats and she wipes her mouth and she says, I have done no wrong. For her, committing adultery is just as easy and just as normal and natural as someone who eats a meal. And here, for some, that is similar to how uh, these people live who eat my people who uh, eat my people like they eat bread. They have no knowledge. They eat my people like they eat bread and have not called upon God. They're not looking to God. They're not calling out to God. Remember the contrast back in Psalm 50, verse 15. Psalm 50, verse 15. God said, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. But here in Psalm 14, the text tells us they did not call upon God. They did not call upon Him. Now, I found a couple of passages that talked about the nations who do not know they do not know and uh, it says they do not call <coughs> upon you and they eat up your people. Same kind of things here that are said in Psalm uh, 53 and verse 4. These passages refer to foreign nations in Jeremiah 10 verse 25 in Psalm 79 Verses 6 and 7. You see these elements. They do not know you. They do not call upon you. And they eat up your people. They devour your people. And that's the same it is here. But here God says, do these workers of wickedness not have any knowledge? Do they not understand? In verse 5, it says, they were in great fear where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against him. You put, to sh- you put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. Let, Ju- let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, look at your text at verse 5. Psalm 53, verse 5. And let me begin, let me read Psalm 14, 5 and 6 again. Psalm 14, 5 and 6. This is from the New American Standard. They were in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. And you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. 
Now, outside of the two differences that we've already named, we name the fact that the title is different. The title is longer in Psalm 53. <laughs> we've pointed out the names for the Lord are different in Psalms 14 and Psalm 53. Outside of this, this is the big difference. Comparing and contrasting Psalm 14, 5 and 6 with Psalm 53 and verse 5. Now I want to read them again. And I want to ask you to think about what is the difference in emphasis here? What is the difference in emphasis? Let me read Psalm 14, 5 and 6. Now the first line is pretty much the same in both of these verses. They were in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Psalm 53, 5. There they were in great fear where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. What is the difference between those verses. What's the difference in emphasis there? Well, there's there's judgment in Psalm 53 that you don't see in Psalm 14. Judgment against the wicked. Okay. The statements where no fear had been and God scattered the bones of him who encamped against him. You put to shame them. You put them to shame because God rejected them. All of those statements are without parallel in Psalm 14. Those statements of judgment have no parallel in Psalm 14. But here are some statements in Psalm 14 which have no parallel in Psalm 53. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. But the Lord is his refuge. There, there is in this statement, those statements, the Lord is with the righteous and the Lord is his refuge, are without parallel. So, Psalm 14 uses this psalm to stress God's deliverance of the righteous. Psalm 53 uses this to describe God's judgment on the wicked. So this is recorded twice. It's recorded twice, but there's a different purpose, a slightly different purpose. One to emphasize God's judgment of the wicked and one to emphasize His deliverance of the righteous. Now, I want us to think about, too, and this is something that shows us the importance of the arrangement of the psalm. Does anyone remember, and I know it's difficult to, but does anyone remember what Psalm 52 was about? I, honestly, I do know that it's difficult, but... But what is it basically about? Psalm 
I've got a heading that says the futility of boastful wickedness for Psalm 52. Okay. And, you know, it was about Doeg. Yeah. And Doeg did, what yeah. he had done and his boasting, okay. really, and what he did. And the first four verses just talk about his boasting, remember. Right. In the, ver- in the last few, it described the blessing of the righteous. But remember what Psalm 52, after he described the wicked, like David is saying in the first four verses, in verse 5, but God will break you down forever. Remember it was in second person. It addresses the wicked. God will break you down. He will snatch you up. He will tear you away from your tents and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The point in context, Psalm 52 emphasized God's judgment on the wicked. And so these words about the fool is said in his heart, there is no God, are particularly repeated to emphasize God's judgment on the wicked. But look over in Psalm 14. Would we also find in Psalm 14, in the context around Psalm 14, an emphasis on God's deliverance of the righteous? Yes. Let me give you one passage that kind of illustrates this. Psalm 12 in verses 5 through 7. It says, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. So you see, each of them fits in their own context. That was Psalm 12, 5 through 7, which emphasizes God's deliverance of the righteous. And so those same words are emphasized to highlight that. I think these Psalms and their placement show us some importance to looking at the overall context of these Psalms and how that can help us to interpret the Psalms. What else? Any other thought there? Um, it's almost like you have the positive and the negative. Yes. Yes, absolutely. The uh, and, and you know, the Bible, I love the way the Bible can do that. Let me illustrate. And this wasn't one of the things I was going to mention. 1 Kings 21, uh, excuse me, 2 Kings 21. It tells us about Manasseh. Does it say one good word about Manasseh? Not a single word. Even after his death, 30, 40 years after his death, the statement is still being made that the people were going to go into captivity because of the sins of Manasseh. In 2 Kings 23, verse 26 and 27, in 2 Kings 24, 3 and 4. He's been dead a long time, and the Bible is saying they're going to go into captivity because of his sins. Kings emphasizes how, how bad Manasseh is. If you look at Chronicles, though, what detail about Manasseh do you find in Chronicles that you didn't find in Kings? He repented. He repented. He repented. And, and, and let me tell y'all, 
And that word there in our Bible reading, now that is a good reason that you all need to read Chronicles. What if you get to heaven and Manasseh introduces himself and he said, I never thought you were going to be here. And he said, didn't you ever read Chronicles? You know, because in Chronicles, I repented. And in Second Chronicles 33, it records his repentance. Why? Because the writer's trying to accomplish something different. In Kings, he's showing how we ended up in captivity to begin with. In Chronicles, what he's doing is showing the way back to God. And that way of salvation is open to the chiefest of sinners, even Manasseh. And so it's the same kind of thing that's being done right here. And uh, now, I ask you, and you all will no doubt think of some that I have not written down. But what are some other passages like this that are recorded a couple of times in Scripture, maybe with slight variation, uh, but the same idea is recorded a couple of times? What, what can you think of? You might have said something, Leanne. Y'all vetoing that? Well, okay. you've got uh, when the Assyrians attacked Very good. Hezekiah, you've got in Isaiah a yes. recording of that. And you also have that in Chronicles, I think. Chronicles and, and Kings. Kings is closer, closer to, to the Isaiah account. Uh, but it was one of you're the, right. That's a very good point. I mean, that is recorded multiple times. Uh, in the New Testament, we can think of things like Paul's conversion is told three times in the book of Acts. But even the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are repeated in Exodus 20 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Ten Commandments are repeated. And there are some Proverbs that are repeated a couple of times. For example, the sluggard says there is a lion in the streets. That's in Proverbs 22 and verse 13. And in Proverbs 26 and verse 13, same statement is made. Uh, Was God running out of Proverbs? Or were those so important that he wanted to make doubly sure we learned the lesson. In Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs 18, verse 8, the words of a whisper are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Well, that's repeated uh, in Proverbs 26, verse 22. And there are a lot of examples like that we could give. Obviously, when something appears twice... It's very significant. It highlights its importance. I, the, the account that David mentioned just a moment ago about Hezekiah, I, I sometimes when I'm preaching on that or teaching on that, I say, this is one of the most important accounts in the Bible. And I know that simply because of how often it's recorded in Isaiah, in Kings, in Chronicles. It's recorded three times like that. It must be of great importance. And so... This would fit into the same category uh, that God has a purpose in this passage being repeated twice. 
Um, anything else right there? How does Psalm 53, and I grant it, there's not as much information about this, but how would we tie Psalm 53 to Jesus? How would we tie it to Jesus or just the New Testament? How would we do that? I hope you all can see that more clearly. It doesn't look clear to me. Put that one on the ground. What was that? Put that marker on the ground. Yeah. No, seriously. I'm not kidding. I, if, I think it was this one. I'm not sure. Let's see if we got any better. Yeah, that's better. Look at that. Look at that. Um, Start over. Yeah. Okay. Psalm 53. Um, how does this speak of Jesus? How... How would you see Jesus foreshadowed here, David? Verse 6, oh, that the salvation of Israel will okay. come out of Zion. Mm-hmm. So, salvation mm-hmm. from Zion. Remember when the woman, and, and this in a way, both shows the unimportance and the importance of Zion. Uh, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And our fathers worship God in this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. And he says, um, he says, salvation is from the Jews. He said that you're to worship. He said, basically, you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. But... Uh, he also said, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. But God brings His salvation from Zion. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus says. It is from the Jews. It is from Zion. And it was outside the walls of Jerusalem that He was crucified. And so truly salvation came to all the world around Zion. From this area, what else do you see? Okay, we want to save that one just a moment, Christy, if, if uh, because that is that is the clearest reference. But what she's saying, Romans three quotes what? Verse three, fifty-three, thirty. Okay, Romans 3, 1 through, or 53, 1 through 3, Romans 3, it's 10 through 12, isn't it? And um, so we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. Um, One of the things, and I have to say, I got this from our earlier discussion in Psalm 14. Uh, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, do the workers of wickedness have no knowledge do they have no you see God speaking do they not know do they have not have do they have no knowledge well no they don't and that was the ground upon which Jesus asked they be forgiven I 
Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And one writer pointed out this. We didn't talk about that phrase much, but in verse 5, God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. They're camping around the city waiting to destroy you. They're camping around waiting to destroy you and their bones, they are so utterly defeated that their bones are scattered everywhere. They're scattered around. But one writer pointed out the contrast, and I don't know that I would have thought about this, the contrast between that verse and Ezekiel 37 Verses 1 through 14, you remember that's where Ezekiel looks out and there's just dry bones everywhere. And the question is asked, can these bones live? And he said, You know, O Lord. And there in Ezekiel 37, he he begins uh, he, he, he begins to speak. And when he speaks, the bones start uh, getting together. And then and then all of a sudden there's flesh on the bones, and then all of a sudden, there's life in the bones. Those dead bones have come to life. Now, that's not the picture here. Here, the dead bones are scattered. But we're saying that Jesus answers this and that Jesus can bring those dead bones to life. A passage that in context is referring to the return from Babylonian captivity. But ultimately, ultimately, the resurrection. I mean, is it really too much of a stretch there to say that Ezekiel 37 ultimately refers to the resurrection? I don't think so. Don't think so. And those are some things I've thought up now. you have anything else before we go back and look at the passage that Christy mentioned? Um... About the idea of God restoring His captive people, setting them free. Okay, that's right. Yes, those are. Uh, that is a. Okay. And God restoring His captive people from verse six. That that kind of language is ultimately the language of God's salvation, and similar kind of things are stated in Luke four. Uh, verses 18 and 19. So those, those are good thoughts. But in Romans 3, Paul quotes from Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. He quotes from them in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Well, let's just start with verse 9 of Romans 3. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, and here he's quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, he strings together from verses 13 through 18 five or six other Old Testament passages, most of which are from the book of Psalms. But his point in this context, 
His point in this context is to emphasize that all have sinned. All have sinned. And all... Oh, I wrote it the wrong place. All have sinned. But the door... The fact that sin has closed the door to salvation by law has opened the door for salvation by grace. The fact that we are all guilty of sin and we're all convicted before God is the basis on which Jesus has died for all and offered salvation to all. And so, but think about that too. This passage, which says the fool has said in his heart there's no God, ultimately convicts us all. Now, I'm not saying that is the main factor that characterizes our life but is there anyone here that understands what I'm saying that says that there's never been a point in your life where you've seen good and wrong good and evil right and wrong and you have acted at some moment sometime as if there's no God to whom you'll give an account There have been moments that I've disregarded that. And so this passage, which is meant here in context to rebuke those who are living without knowledge of God, is also a passage that applies to all of us and shows us our desperate need of Jesus and desperate need of the forgiveness that he brings. And so the passage shows us how Jesus answers the problem that's raised in Psalm 53. Jesus provides salvation from sin. What other thoughts do you all have? Yes. Uh, in verse 5, I'm just struck with this state of, of fear and terror that they live under. That removing a fear of God doesn't actually remove fear in their life, it actually multiplies it. Yes. Um, they think that if, if we can just disregard or pretend the one who's going to hold us accountable doesn't exist, you would think that they would have a more peaceful experience and yet usually they are more afraid of more things yes and, and, and at some moment they're going to come face to face with the God they've denied and can you imagine I, it, it is such an awesome thing to think about standing before the God who made us that I think it needs to rob any of us of pride and clothe us with humility 
But can you imagine the Carl Sagan of the world or the Hugh Hefners of the world who have lived their whole life in total disregard of God all of a sudden standing before the God whom they have denied whether with their words or with the way they've lived. Can you imagine that terror? And so you're right. I think you're right, Craig. It doesn't remove terror per se. And there's going to be a form of it to come which is beyond anything that they can imagine. And sometimes you see that those words used in the Old Testament to talk about how God sends fear upon an enemy army to <coughs> cause them to, to lose heart in battle against God's people. The more God is removed from our society, the more terrifying this world becomes. Oh, absolutely. And we're seeing the results of that. The more terrified, uh, the more terrifying the world becomes and the more terrified a lot of the people become. Oh, we want to do away with fear of God. Um, if someone is to point out, for example, and this would be correct, there have been a lot of people throughout time, there have been people even in the last few years who said the world's going to end and Jesus is going to come back on this date. And the world holds that up for ridicule. And some of them say there's not going to be any judgment and Jesus is not going to return. But I read an article just a couple of days ago and how many times that same thing has been done with climate change. <laughs> and he dated some of them. You only have this many years to fix it. Well, those time has come and gone. They may have traded fear of the Lord, but there's another thing that they're afraid of, that they're just, that they're terrified is coming. And so we don't do away, we don't do away with, with fear. But we've appreciated you all being here and studying with us. Lord willing, we will not meet next Tuesday. Um, so, um, because I, I will be away. And, uh, but Lord willing, when we come back, we'll, we'll look at the seven verses of Psalm 54 um, and study those together. But Craig, would you lead us in prayer as we close before we have our song? God, our Father, we pray that you would instill in us fear and awe of you, that we would not become so prideful that we do not see a need for you. We pray that you would fill us with, with knowledge of you and the spirit of you, that we would share that with the world, that we would exemplify what it is to, to have your spirit in us. We are so blessed to know you, Lord, and to have your word, and we're thankful to be able to study it tonight together. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And I'm leaving up one of these songs here, and then we'll, I'll try to pass these out here. Pass those through this is an inexact number. <clears throat>